Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the politics section, Liz Truss faces growing pressure to rip up tax-slashing plans. Article by Jodie Harrison. Liz Truss was under fire from her own MPs as they demanded more U-turns on her tax-slashing agenda after she ruled out spending cuts to balance the books. The Prime Minister's leadership was in renewed peril as she was accused of trashing the last 10 years of the Tories' record at a bruising meeting with backbenchers. MPs piled pressure on her to restore market confidence in her government, with reports suggesting she is facing mounting calls to reverse or delay her plan to cancel a rising corporation tax from 19% to 25% due in April. Ms Truss has insisted this and other tax cuts will boost growth, but the so far unfunded measures in Chancellor Quasi Quarting's mini-budget have sparked chaos in the financial markets. Mel Stride, the Tory chairman of the Commons Treasury Committee, said that given Minister's commitments to, public prote- to protect public spending, there was a question over whether any plan that did not include at least some element of further rollback on the £43 billion tax slashing package can reassure, reassure investors. Credibility might now be swinging towards evidence of a clear change in tax rather than just coming up with other measures that try to square the fiscal circle, Mr Stride said. Conservative former minister David Davis called the mini-budget a maxi-shambles and suggested reversing some of the tax cuts would allow Ms Truss and Mr Quarting to avert leadership challenges for a few months. If they do that, I think people like Mel Stride and others will come in behind them and they buy them some time, he told ITV's Peston. Damien Green a former Deputy Prime Minister said Conservative MPs are openly discussing reversing some of the mini-budget measures as they question how else she can reduce debt after she rejected public spending reductions. It is indeed a topic of conversation around the tea rooms of the House of Commons as well, because we can all do the rough maths and see it's very difficult, he told BBC Radio 4's PM programme. One of the obvious ways would be to possibly to defer some of the tax cuts or the failure to put taxes up. As MPs openly discussed the prospect of ousting the Prime Minister, an attempt to win over mutinous MPs at a meeting of the Tory Backbench 1922 Committee on Wednesday evening failed. Addressing the group, Minister Trust said small businesses would have faced devastation if the government had not acted to cap energy prices, according to AIDS. But she was met with open criticism with MPs reportedly raising concerns about soaring mortgage rates and the Tories slumping the polls. Commons Education Committee Chair Robert Halfin told Ms Truss she had trashed the last 10 years of workers' conservatism. The Prime Minister and Chancellor are expected to meet with critical MPs from the next week to try to ensure them that Mr Quarting's medium-term fiscal plan on October the 31st 
will address their concerns. But Jacob Rees-Mogg suggested the government could ignore Office for Budget Responsibility forecasts accompanying the strategy if they predict low growth and rising debt. The Business Secretary told ITV's Peston that its record of forecasting accurately hasn't been enormously good and that the Chancellor could draw on other sources of information. Earlier on Wednesday, Ms Trust insisted during her second Prime Minister's questions that she was absolutely not planning public spending cuts but insisted that taxpayers' money will be used well. But the remarks failed to prevent another day of economic turbulence, which saw a rise in the cost of government borrowing and the pound fall against the euro and dollar. Since Mr Quarting's September 23 mini-budget, the value of sterling has fluctuated and yields in government bonds, the cost of state borrowing, rose to such an extent that the Bank of England was forced to intervene to prevent problems for pension funds. Mistrust was also warned by senior advisers that it was no longer credible to press ahead with large tax cuts without risking a financial crisis, the Times newspaper reported. She has already abandoned plans to cut the 45p rate of income tax for top earners. Economists have suggested that restoring confidence in the government's grip in the national finances will require tens of billions of pounds worth of spending cuts or tax rises. And that was a report by Jodie Harrison. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the news section. More apologies, 7th Camac Ferry taken out of action in space of a few days. By Martin Williams. A 7th Calmark Lifeline ferry has been forced out of action since the weekend in a wave of faults and suspensions to state-controlled services. It comes as issues with MV Lord of the Isles, which has seen services to South US suspended since the weekend, have led to it being withdrawn completely till Friday at least. On Monday, services to and from Barra, South US, Mull, Islay and Dunoon were disrupted with MV Isle of Lewis MV Lord of the Isles, MV Finlagen, MV Loch Linney, and Argyle Flyer all taken out of action after a series of problems from Sunday night. On Tuesday, it emerged that the services cancellations have spread to Isley since, cause, since caused by issues with MV Hebridean Isles bilge system. The vessel had been brought in on Monday morning to support services in Newest after other vessel failures. The issues were fixed on Wednesday. While MV Klansman was rerouted to help Barra at Mull sailings in wake of the latest wave that led to services to call, Tyree being suspended on Tuesday. Also suspended were services to call and say in Islay. On Wednesday, it was the turn of MP Kurisic. The problem with the 19-year-old vessel's capstan meant a raft of sailings were cancelled on the Malay to Armadale and Sky Crossing on Wednesday. Twelve more sailings were cancelled for Thursday. And issues with the MV Lord of the Isles steelwork, which emerged at the weekend, were unable to be fixed and it has now been withdrawn for repairs to be carried out in dry dock at Cammon Laird in Birkenhead. Services to and from South US remain suspended on Wednesday and will continue to be out of action for Thursday and Friday. Calmac said, We are currently looking at alternative options for travel. Customers impacted by these cancellations will be contacted to discuss alternative sailings. They said passengers who are able to do so can travel by foot or use the services to Loch Matty in North Uist, 42 miles away from South Uist Loch Boysdale port. Our teams will do everything they can to assist. However, 
Depending on demand and availability, transport connections cannot be guaranteed. Cancelling ceilings is a decision we do not take lightly, and we understand the impact it has on our customers and the communities we serve. We apologise for the inconvenience caused, and our team is working hard to minimise the impact to our customers. Alistair Allen, the SMP MSP for Nahid Ilden Anar, has previously raised his frustration and said he was meeting Transport Minister Jenico Ruth to discuss the ongoing issues. Loch Boysdale, the port which links South US to the mainland, had been out of action to ferries between September the 24th and October the 8th to allow for repairs to the link span used by the ferry. South US was told that while it's losing services, that the extra services would operate to Loch Maddy. A routine annual inspection by specialist engineers and Caledonia Maritime Assets Limited, CMAL, which owns the ferry terminal, have revealed a number of lifting ropes in the link span which need to be replaced at the earliest opportunity. Last year's inspections showed no issues. Last week it emerged that the alternative route for people to Loch Maddy was hit with cancellations by further concerns of her safety due to pier works and adverse weather. Calmac had continued to warn users that the works associated with the £15.3 million pier upgrade, which restricts vessel movement in the harbour area, can be cancelled at short notices. It told users to expect further disruption with an amended timetable on Tuesday. In April, George Leslie Limited began replacing the existing infrastructure at the West Coast Ferry Terminal to cater for a new fleet of vessels. In August, Used Islands complained that shops had to ration essential items amid widespread ferry cancellations. It came after the loss of MV Hebrides, one of Calmac's oldest ferries, which was taken out of service on Tuesday for a third time in a matter of weeks because of an issue with its CO2 firefighting system, which is a safety issue. The state-owned ferry operator Calmac is having to handle an ageing ferry fleet with new vessels Glen Sanax and Hull 802 still languishing in Port Glasgow as the cost of their construction have soared from the original £97 million contract to at least £250 million, and delivery is over five years late. 17 of Calmac's 35 working ferries deployed across Scotland are now over 25 years old. The oldest in the Calmac fleet is the Isle of Cumbria, which is 46 years old. Meanwhile, the much-delayed Glen Sanit and as yet unnamed Hull 802 are due to be delivered to serve island communities in 2023 and early 2024 at a potential cost of nearly £350 million, over three and a half times the initial £97 million contract. And that piece was by Martin Williams. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the politics section, Nicola Sturgeon's plans to fund Indie Scotland branded Environmentally and Economically Reckless by David Ball Nicola Sturgeon has defended her strategy to use North Sea oil revenues to kickstart the economy of a future independent Scotland despite concerns of the climate impact. Climate campaigners have insisted that polluting oil and gas giants will need to be taxed properly and tasked with cleaning up our own mess in an independent Scotland to avoid the strategy of failing to generate a significant amount of income. In the 2014 independence referendum, the Yes campaign relied heavily on oil, with Alex Hammonds making a bold claim that the North Sea industry belonged to Scotland. But since the first vote on independence eight years ago, the climate crisis has been placed at the centre of the political agenda. 
Burning fossil fuels is politically toxic with voters. With the North Sea oil and gas sector in the firing line for climate campaigners across Scotland and the UK. In her keynote speech at the SNP conference on Monday, the First Minister announced that a new £20 billion fund will be set up in an independent Scotland with oil revenues and using the Scottish Government's borrowing powers to kickstart the new country's economy. Asked by the Herald about the reliance on fossil fuels to boost the economy of an independent Scotland, Ms Sturgeon defended the strategy. She said, You can't switch off oil overnight, so you're going to have revenues for a period of time. Those revenues should be used to further advance the transition away from fossil fuels. But environmentalists have warned that an independent Scotland will need to urgently shift away from oil and gas if the country is to keep its progress in tackling the climate crisis on track. Friends of the Air Scotland's head of campaigns, Mary Church, said, Oil and gas are destroying our future, so it would be environmentally and economically reckless to attempt to build a new country with the revenue they generate. Climate science doesn't care about the constitution, and every new fossil fuel project anywhere speeds us closer to climate breakdown. An independent Scotland will have to heed this physical reality and urgently shift away from oil and gas to reliable, affordable renewables as part of a just transition, as the UK must. She added, Ending fuel poverty, decarbonising homes and supporting community renewables does not depend on the constitutional settlement. The Scottish Government should use their existing powers and prioritise investment in these areas to get a move on with this agenda that is all the more critical in light of the cost of living crisis. Any money that was potentially brought in from fossil fuels to an independent Scotland should be going to compensate the people who are bearing the brunt of climate impacts. Communities on the front line, like those being hosted by the Scottish Government this week, are entitled to the reparations from rich historical polluters. An independent Scotland should be paying climate reparations for damage caused by using fossil fuels, not pouring more fuel in the fire and trying to profit from the misery they inflict. Oil revenues will be significantly reduced in the coming years given the huge subsidies that companies have just secured in the form of tax relief for decommissioning their platforms in the North Sea. The tax regime for fossil fuel companies in the UK makes it the most profitable place to operate in the world, so unless the First Minister is indicating that major polluters will be taxed properly and tasked with cleaning up their own mess in an independent Scotland, it's hard to see this actually generating much income. The Scottish Greens, who are in government with the SNP at Holyrood, are understand, understood to be supportive of the idea in the context that fossil fuels will be phased out, but believe that for as long as they are produced, they should be properly taxed and that cash should go towards the just transition. Scottish Green's energy spokesperson Mark Ruskell said, We are phasing out fossil fuels, but we aren't turning off the taps overnight, so for as long as they are produced, they should be properly taxed and that cash should go towards a just transition. We cannot drill our way out of the climate crisis, which is why we need to invest in clean, renewable jobs of the future. But the First Minister has been accused of hypocrisy by her political opponents, amid claims that the Scottish Government is not supportive of the North Sea oil and gas sector. Liam Kerr, Scottish Conservative Shadow Energy Secretary, said, After years of talking down domestic production of oil and gas, Nicola Sturgeon's supposed conversion shows her opportunism is matched only by her hypocrisy. Apparently, all it took for her to appreciate the North Sea was a trip to Aberdeen, he added, but she has some nerve promising an oil fund for Scotland, 
Only after independence, of course, when the SAP have abandoned the industry and those employees, having denied the need for energy security by increasing domestic production, Ms. Sturgeon only backs her North Sea industry when she decides it can help her obsession with another divisive referendum. This rehash of Alex Salmon's 2014 separation plans will not deceive the tens of thousands of Scots who know the SNP Green Coalition would happily turn off the taps tomorrow and throw them out of work. The First Minister stressed that the new fund could help pay for net zero policies in a future independent Scotland, with many measures currently without a funding route. Scotland's strategy to decarbonise buildings in the next decade would require an estimated £33 billion, while only £1.8 billion has so far been allocated by SNP and Green Ministers. Speaking at the SNP conference, Ms Sturgeon said the party, in a future independent Scotland, would invest remaining oil revenues and use our borrowing powers to set up an independence investment fund. She told delegates that the Building a New Scotland Fund would deliver up to £20 billion of investment in the first decade of independence. Ms Sturgeon insisted that the revenue could support a massive programme to decarbonise housing, cut fuel bills and reduce fuel poverty. She added, It could finance the building of thousands more affordable homes, invest in local renewable energy projects, helping communities own assets and wield more influence over their use. It will help the transition to net zero, build resilient communities and kickstart the sustainable economic growth so important for our newly independent nation. Ms Sturgeon told SNP members that the policy would combine Scotland's abundant resources with the powers of independence to benefit this and future generations. And that article was an exclusive by David Ball. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the news section, Renewable energy generation hits record high. Report by Jody Harrison. Renewable energy generation in Scotland has reached a record high, new figures show. The 7,358 gigawatt hours produced in April, May and June of this year was a 36% increase on the same time frame in 2021 and more than 25% greater than any second quarter previously recorded. It contributed to the 18,568 gigawatt hours of renewable electricity being generated in the first half of 2022, up 29% in 2021, the Scottish Government said. Higher wind speeds, increased rainfall and additional capacity coming online are understood to have contributed to the increases. Net Zero and Energy Secretary Michael Matheson said the achievement will help deliver in Scotland's climate obligations. Renewable energy capacity increased by 10.5% from June 2021 to 13.3 gigawatts in the same month of this year, driven largely by new wind farms becoming operational. An additional 16.7 gigawatts of renewable electricity is currently in the pipeline, which could deliver a further 27.6 gigawatts of capacity in the coming years. Mr Matheson said, We are in the midst of an energy crisis which has been compounded by the illegal war in Ukraine. It has prompted governments across the world to consider how to avoid this situation happening in the future. Scotland's energy transition can increase the security of supply and help to make us far more resilient to future international energy price fluctuations. Wind power is already one of the cheapest forms of electricity and their expansion plans are both on and off offshore wind. 
supported by other renewable technologies such as hydropower, provides a fantastic opportunity to support an energy transition that not only delivers our, on our climate obligations, but which ensures a f- fair and just transition for Scotland's energy sector as we journey to becoming a net zero nation. For Slovak, Climate and Energy Policy Manager at WWF Scotland said, It's great to see Scotland breaking records again for renewable power and generation thanks to new power stations coming online and windy weather. With sky-high fossil fuel prices causing a cost-of-living crisis, renewable energy is helping to lower energy bills and cut carbon pollution. The challenge ahead is converting as much of our heating and transport to running clean, homegrown renewables to protect us against volatile prices and climate change. And that report was by Jodie Harrison. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the sports section, Football. Hearts missing four players through injury for huge Fiorentina clash. By Ewan Payton. Robbie Nielsen has confirmed that Hearts will be without four key players for tonight's clash against Fiorentina through injury. Craig Halkett did not travel with the Jambos first team squad, while Michael Smith, Josh Ginelli and Gary Mackay-Steven all have knocks. The Edinburgh Giants go into the match desperate to pick up a positive result to keep their conference league journey alive. Last week's trouncing at Tynecastle against the same opposition won't have done the confidence levels any good. However, the Serie A side were handed a thumping themselves in league action against Lazio on Monday, which gives Hearts hope that a triumph in Florence could be possible. Nielsen told the media, I watched the game on Monday and it was a disappointing scoreline for them. They actually played very well and got it in the counter-attack four times. I'd expect them to bounce back. It's no difference for us whether they won or lost. We would like not to concede after four minutes like last week. We want to stay in the game and create some chances, get a foothold in the game and put a bit of pressure on Fiorentina. It's the same with any big club. You lose a couple of games and it's going to be pressure from fans. We have had it in our place. It's part of football. He continues, Obviously it would be huge if Hearts won. To come to a place like this and get something from it would be outstanding for us. I know the fans are coming in numbers and it would be a great night for them. We know it will be tough, but we're confident we can take something. Generally we sell out at Tynecastle and we're used to that atmosphere. Tomorrow will be a different atmosphere, a different type of stadium, a lot bigger and a lot more open. We will have 4,000 Hearts fans coming, so I'm sure they will make a lot of noise. We're really excited about playing in the stadium. We want to get to that stage and be a big club participating regularly in Europe. It's a learning curve for everyone, players, staff, fans, but we want to continue doing it. It's an honour to represent Scotland in Europe. It's extra workload and extra pressure, but we enjoy it. Fiorentina and Basakasier are top teams. Zurich are Swiss champions. You want to be playing at the highest level. And that report was by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the sports section, timing of horrendous VAR introduction will add to scrutiny as Premiership rollout looms large. By Christopher Jack. The call for patience was no doubt delivered with the best of intentions, but Ian Maxwell has been around the game here long enough to know that the trait is often short supply on these shores. 
at least this Cottage FA Chief Executive has laid out a timescale for supporters to work to. Once we'll get the first three months of VAR out the road, it should all be just hunky-dory. This is a period that Maxwell has warned will be horrendous as the technology is rolled out across the Premiership. It is here, and it is here to stay. Initially set to be introduced after the World Cup break, and when the schedule resumes in December, the process has now been shunted forward, and the cameras will go live next week as Scottish football falls in the footsteps of so many of its peers across the continent. Like most issues here, the camps in favour of or against VAR are largely partisan. Some are all for it and see it as a step in the right direction, while others are hugely sceptical of the idea and reckon it will be more hassle than it is worth. In all likelihood, the truth will rest somewhere in the grey area in the middle. It usually does, but seeing that perspective is often tricky for fans who only view life through the prison of their club and the colour of their scarf. The pros and cons of VAR have been debated and discussed for long enough, and the only way to definitively discover if it is any use here or not is to press the on button, draw the lines on the screen, and sit the officials down in their technology nerve centre while the action unfolds across the country. They're going through the testing process, Maxwell said this week. They've done pretty much all the stadiums, and they're testing the connectivity in the software, not necessarily the match officials. It's about whether the guys in the VAR centre can speak to the referee and everything works. That seems to have been going okay. We'll see. We need to do it right. Due to the profile and because of the interest it's going to get, we need to be as ready as everyone can be. Now everyone I speak to at UEFA tells me that the first three months are going to be horrendous. Such a statement is unlikely to win over the doubters. And even those who are supportive of the move will surely have winced and had reason to think, what if, now that the game is basing itself for a teething process that will be anything but straightforward? Scottish football has had to move with the game as a whole or risk being left behind. But the timing of the VAR implementation is also one of the biggest issues with it right now and bringing forward the start date will only increase the expectation among some that it will be the silver bullet to solve all the refereeing ills in this country. That, of course, is never going to be the case. The variety of camera angles and the array of lines on the screen should assist their officials, but it will not make them flawless, and anyone who expects all the controversy and conjecture to vanish overnight clearly doesn't know Scottish football, or hasn't been paying attention to other leagues and competitions that have been using VAR for some time now. Players will still argue with the whistler and protest their innocence, or express their feelings of injustice post-match. Fans will still claim there is a bias towards the old firm or across the Derby divide, and the tiresome old arguments will become even more banal. Within weeks, we'll hear managers claim that they've been unfairly treated because a decision made against them thanks to VAR wouldn't have been given earlier in the campaign. In that regard, they have got a point. Introducing the system a couple of months into the campaign is a nonsense and makes a mockery of the competition. So much for sporting integrity. The fact that it will be the same for all teams can be used as an argument to claim all is fair and equal but managers will be quite right to point out the inconsistency in decisions over the coming weeks now that the referees have got some extra eyes on the action. It is not right that calls that would have been overturned in September, be it goals, offsides or cards, are now reversed in October. Moving the goalposts after a round of fixtures will skew the competition and only give the critics of VAR a reason to shout louder. Patience is probably a good word to use, Maxwell said.
There's an understanding piece as well, just making sure that fans, managers and players and pundits and broadcast media know what it's used and why it's used. You sit and watch a game and it's a throw-in and people say VER will tell it's the wrong way, but that doesn't get involved in those things. We've spoken to managers and we'll continue to do that, to educate everyone as much as we can. The biggest thing is that we'll be using it and getting used to the way it works. We need it, we want it, the clubs want it, and it will solve a lot of the problems. You'll always have the one or two contentious decisions, but this should, fi- should it fix that. Overall, VER should be good for Scottish football and the standard of officiating, one which is so often rightly derided, must continue to improve rather than regress now a helping hand has arrived. If more correct calls are made more of the time and the blatant mistakes are reduced in number, that can only be beneficial for those on the park and in the stands. The timing is not fair but the moment has come. Now we just have to wait and see how horrendous it's going to be. And that article is by Christopher Jack. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 12th of October 2022. From the opinion section, Letters. I once was proud of the Tories. How could I possibly be now? And these are letters from the Herald Scotland letters page. Keith Howell, Letters October 11, seems to think that when Nicola Sturgeon said, I detest the Tories and everything they stand for, she made an error of judgement. Sadly, I have to admit that I feel much the same way as Miss Sturgeon does myself, and I started as a true blue Tory from a Tory family. The First Minister was only putting into words the feelings that we are being forced into by the actions of the Tory party at Westminster, which, sadly, still runs the UK. What have they done to be proud of? Brexit has torn out of the EU against its will. This has made trade with Europe so difficult that Scotland is losing income it badly needs. Tory financial mismanagement of the UK has led to rampant inflation which has left most of us worse off, but some so poor they are both cold and hungry. We can be proud of our food banks, if embarrassed that they have been forced upon us. The Tory government had no hand in setting them up, only driving more and more people into reliance on them. Is this their idea of encouraging enterprise and levelling up? I had a cousin who was chief whip in a Tory government. I was proud of Lord Hume when he spoke so well to the United Nations. I was even there to see him do it. How can I be proud of a Prime Minister without even the common manners to get in touch with the First Ministers of the other countries in the UK? Was the one before her any better? Someone who would give the green light to evacuating a plane load of dogs from Kabul, leaving behind Afghans and their families, who supported the British and were at great risk of being killed by the Taliban? We used to trust the Conservatives as having a steady hand, but this lot mouth one contradictory policy after another. Is Labour any better? I can see so little difference in their policies that I feel Sir Keir Stammer has thrown his lot in with the entitled elite on the opposite benches. The SNP Green Alliance offers a strong lifeboat ready to save us from the sinking Titanic. It is called independence. I suggest Mr Howell takes a good look at where he's going at present under this Tory lead and save himself and his family to live a better life in an independent Scotland. Elizabeth Scott, Edinburgh Right to detest these policies. The full outrage which created Nicola Sturgeon's comment that she detested the Tories and everything they stand for Hollywood Chief is asked to step into the Tory row, the Herald, October the 10th, was another example of Tories desperately clutching at straws. 
but the straws have slipped from their fingers and left them floundering, because clearly Miss Sturgeon's view of Tory policies is one shared by a great number of people, not only in Scotland, but around the other UK nations. And it is absolutely right that people should detest policies designed to give the rich tax cuts at the expense of the poor, and their aim to pack vulnerable people onto planes bound for Rwanda, just as it was right in the past to detest the bedroom tax and the poll tax. I found it very refreshing that in the First Minister's conference speech, Sturgeon's rallying cry over plans for Nwende Refot, the Herald October 11, which embraced all those suffering oppression and violence in Ukraine, Iran and Afghanistan, which brimmed over with positivity and ambition for Scotland. She emphasised the strong bonds of friendship Scotland has with England, Wales and Ireland, which could be strengthened with independence when these nations would meet together in a spirit of cooperation and respect, a true partnership of equals. That is an exciting and laudable aspiration for a new and better future for us all. Ruth Marr, Starling Will FM really respect court? Nicola Sturgeon said in her conference speech that she would respect the decision of the Supreme Court judges regarding the power to hold another referendum. Would this be in the same way she respected the decisions of the 2014 referendum, the national vote in Brexit, and many other instances in which she respects the decisions she likes and ignores the rest? She also said she will never give up the fight for Scottish democracy. The same criteria applies. Scottish democracy under the SNP is based on We Decide, Not You. Ian Ballock, Grangemouth. The storms are just starting. Nicola Sturgeon's speech might have gone down well with the faithful in the hall, but it was all about independence, which the Supreme Court could shortly quash. There was little or no mention, unsurprisingly, of all the real problems besetting Scotland right now. We all know what they are. Health, education, the economy and transport. Ms Sturgeon's speech could have been delivered any time in the last few years. Scotland has not progressed and in many ways has regressed under her less than watchful eye. The winter political storms are just getting started. Independence is not the answer. Sound ideas and practical ways to alleviate all the above problems are. As Ms Sturgeon's speech pointed out by its omissions, these answers will not be forthcoming from our current government. She stated she was not ready to leave her job. This is unlikely to be up to her. Dr Gerald Edwards, Glasgow SNP's empty, shallow politics. So the debate regarding the nature of a de facto referendum has started. It is not hard to see how this will play out. We can be quite confident that if the SNP polls 50% plus one or over, it will declare the referendum won. And at the same time, Scotland's UK government, whoever it is, will say, nope, sorry, it was a general election. And if the SNP falls short of that figure, it will say that it was not a referendum at all, but a general election. And at the same time, Scotland's UK government will say, nope, sorry, it was a referendum and you lost. Bye-bye, Nicola. Such is the empty and shallow politics that the SNP has delivered in Scotland by its constant tedious campaign to overturn the will of the people as expressed in its own referendum. And to think that we expected so much better from devolution. Peter E. Russell, Glasgow Pension concerns are unfounded. Duncan Suman, Letters October 11th, ignores the fact that after independence we can change the government of the day and at every election we will get one that attracts the most votes in Scotland, unlike Westminster elections. On his pensions concerns, people who have retired to Spain or emigrated to Australia 
still get their UK pension, and the leading UK pensions expert, Baroness Ross Altman, a former Tory pensions minister, stated in February that the SNP's state pension position is understandable. How can the UK government refuse to pay state pensions to people living reaching state pension age after paying, paying the required national insurance contributions? If they live abroad, their state pension is paid to them. We need to negotiate it all. If Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Luxembourg and Ireland can all pay better state pensions than the UK, then so could Scotland with our vast surplus of energy resources. Westminster still takes the bulk of our taxes, but Scotland's taxation, that it raises itself, is currently enough to pay for all of the Scottish Government's policy responsibilities, plus also social security provision and all Scottish public pensions in any normal year. Fraser Grant, Edinburgh Why would you want in the EU? As an avid Brexit-supporting Sassanach, who believes Scotland should determine its own future, I am nonplussed as to why the SNP would wish to rejoin the EU anyway. However, even supposing an indirect 2 is successful, the EU has a stipulation that no country can join with a GDP deficit of above 3%. Scotland's is currently 12.3%. Whilst there may be some movement in this because of Covid in Ukraine, the EU is hard up for cash, as Ireland has recently discovered. Ireland, with a similar population to Scotland, for so long a recipient member, has had subscriptions doubled and expects to pay €4 billion Euros by 2027. Moreover, instead of Westminster Rule, where £35.1 billion of Barnet formula is given up, the Scots would opt for Brussels. And history shows that, in the main, only German, Belgium and French MEPs, the three de facto leaders of the bloc, are voted into the top positions. So, what's the difference? Jim Sokol, Minehead, Somerset. And that was today's letters page from the Herald Scotland. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 12th of October 2022. From the Voices section, More women working than ever as Scotland becomes an employment haven. A comment piece by Gavin Mochan. Female employment in Scotland has never been higher, with latest figures from the Office for National Statistics, ONS, showing nearly 1.32 million women aged 16 to 64 holding down a job under contract between June and August of this year. The resulting employment rate of 74.9% is the highest since the ONS started keeping such records in 1992. The proportion of female employment ranged from the mid to high 60s up until the spring of 2014, after which it started regularly coming in above 70%. Economic inactivity, those not in work and not seeking work, among women throughout the UK has been falling since 2010 in part due to increases in the state pension age. After a slight decline in female employment in the years immediately following the banking crisis of 2008, there has been a steady growth on this front since 2012. Some of this increase in employment has come from growing numbers of women starting their own businesses, with those working full-time for themselves growing 7% quarter-on-quarter. This compares to 1% fewer men do the same. Females are also significantly more likely to work part-time. 38% of working women do so on a part-time basis, versus just 13% of men. Here it's worth noting that part-timers tend to earn less per hour than their full-time equivalents. 
Yesterday's figures also show that across all workers in Scotland, pay increases are failing to keep pace with other parts of the UK. This, in turn, is driving employers to seek out cheaper talent north of the border. The latest estimates from the ONS indicate that median monthly remuneration for payroll employees in Scotland was £2,125, an increase of 5.3% in the same period a year earlier. This was significantly adrift a drift of 6.3% increase in monthly pay for the UK as a whole. Meanwhile, hiring demand in Scotland has risen of late, with 55,000 openings advertised in September, 21% more than in June. Conversely, England and Wales have been oscillating between growth and decline. They had 856,000 vacancies advertised online in September, 1% fewer than, than in June, perhaps indicating that businesses in the South have been more sensitive to the bewildering mini-budget announced by a government in chaos. It seems Scotland has become an area of respite from rising employment costs. This argument is affirmed when you look at firms such as Barclays, which unveiled its state-of-the-art campus in Glasgow in October of last year. Its Glasgow workforce has grown by 90% and is on track to hit 5,000 by 2023. Job openings in banking and insurance grew by 29% month-on-month in September and were up 47% compared to a year earlier. IT rules, which are crucial to banking growth, also grew 67% month-on-month and by 16% on an annual basis. Against this backdrop, the demand for workers in Scotland has shown few signs of abating. The forthcoming recession could eventually put a dampener on recruitment in IT and banking, but will bear far harder on lower-paid and part-time workers. By Gavin Malkin, who is Managing Director of S1 Jobs. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 12th of October 2022, from the Voices section, Adam Tompkins, the Nationalists lose whatever the Supreme Court decides. Realistically, there are only three options available to the UK Supreme Court, which this week is hearing the argument in the case brought to it by the Scottish Government that Holyrood ought to be permitted to hold a repeat referendum on independence, even without Westminster's consent. None of the options favours the Nationalists. Whatever you read about the law and politics of Indiref 2, this week, know this, it is not going to happen, not any time soon, and certainly not in the fanciful timetable Nicola Sturgeon says she prefers. The first option available to the court is the rule this week's case out has been premature. Rather ingeniously, the Scottish Government's Lord Advocate has bypassed and short-circuited the normal legal procedures used for testing whether Holyrood's enactments are within its lawmaking competence. Those processes can be triggered only after the Scottish Parliament has debated and passed a bill into law. As things stand, no such bill has ever even been introduced into Holyrood, never mind debated, amended or passed. And yet here we are in court already. It is open to the justices to rule that the case should only have come anywhere near the Supreme Court until after Holyrood has enacted a bill. Then, and only then, could any binding ruling be made as to that bill's legality. That's option one. Option 2 is for the court to accept that it should rule in the substance, despite the unusual route the case has taken to get into court. The substance of the matter is as follows. Holyrood will have the lawful authority to enact a law authorising a second independence referendum without Westminster's consent, only if that law does not relate to reserve matters. 
the Union of Scotland and England is a reserved matter. Clearly, independence itself relates to the Union. It would relate to the Union by terminating it. But does a bill which authorises not independence itself, but a referendum about independence, relate to the reserved matter of the Union? The legal tests the courts must deploy to answer this question are set out in the Scotland Act. Whether a measure relates to reserved matters depends on its purpose, having regard to its effect or the circumstances. Thus, there are two relevant tests, purpose and effect. Option two is for the justices to rule as the UK government would like them to rule, namely that the purpose of an independence referendum is to prosecute the case for independence, which relates to the reserved matter of the Union, and that the effect of an independence referendum is to determine whether the Union continues or not. Thus, both the purpose and the effect of an independence referendum relate to a matter, the Union, which the Scotland Act reserves to Westminster, and, as such, Holyrood has no legislative competence to enact an independence referendum bill into law without Westminster's consent. That's option two. Option three is more subtle, but even if it's the option which the justices in the end take, the nationalists still lose. Option three goes back to those key tests of purpose and effect and probes them more deeply. In her written case to the court, the Lord Advocate has accepted that the purpose of any independence referendum cannot be to secure independence. Independence itself would require its own legislation, lots of it in fact, in both Holyrood and Westminster. In this respect, independence is just like Brexit. Brexit was not secured by the 2016 referendum. It was secured only years later by legislation enacted by Parliament and by agreement with the European Union agreement which took years of wrangling to deliver. Thus, concedes the Lord Advocate, the purpose of an independence referendum is simply to test the opinion of the people of Scotland, and this purpose, testing public opinion, is not reserved to Westminster. Likewise, she concedes that the effect of a yes vote cannot itself amount to anything in law. Again, just as with Brexit, the mere expression of public opinion in favour of leaving changes nothing. Option 3, then, is that the Scottish Parliament can hold Indiref 2 without Westminster's consent, but only on the understanding that the purpose of the referendum is simply to ask voters to express a preference, as they would, for example, in an opinion poll, and that the effect of doing so precisely nil, to use the Lord Advocate's memorable word. Were such a referendum to take place, it would be so hollowed out of meaning that it would amount to nothing more than an empty stunt. Those opposed to it would simply ignore it, refusing to have anything to do with it. There would be no no campaign. The unionist parties and their supporters would boycott the whole thing and the SNP would look ridiculous. And that's it. Those really are the only three options the Supreme Court has in deciding this case. I have no more idea than anyone else which option or which combination of options the justices will choose. But whatever happens, the nationalists lose. Which leaves only one question, really. Given the Nationalists must know all of this, why have they brought the case to the Supreme Court in the first place? They cannot win from here, so why do it? Perhaps this is all just an act designed to buy time. Nicola Sturgeon has become rather experienced at pulling the wool over her supporters' eyes, making them believe that a referendum is just around the corner, when she knows full well this is not. One day, perhaps they will realise that, for years now, they have been taken for a ride. That column was about Adam Tompkins, 
who was a Conservative MSP for the Glasgow region from 2016 to 2021. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 12th of October 2022. From the Voices section, Rosemary Goring, warning, a private education can seriously limit your career choices. Back in the 1980s, Oxford University was like a scientist's secret laboratory where, in a tightly controlled environment, a new species of political animal was being created out of whatever material came to hand. The components found at the back of the garage were certainly random. Boris Johnson, Theresa May, David Cameron, Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings. Few of them were traditional material for the very top job in the country. Bojo was a busterer, May was diffident, Gove a bit odd, Cummings anarchic. Only Cameron, an Etonian like Boris, had the old school qualities. A cast iron sense of entitlement, commonly found in leaders of state. In Chums, how a tiny cast of Oxford Tories took over the UK, an analysis of the clique that came out of Oxford at that time. Financial Times columnist and Oxford graduate Simon Cooper shows how, all those decades ago, the key players who were led the UK into Brexit and beyond were already as tightly knit as the famous five. It is a depressing portrait of the influence wielded by those who go to Oxford University preferably after an education at one of the country's most celebrated fee-paying schools. Of the 16 post-war Prime Ministers, only four weren't students there. In other words, if your ambition is to occupy number 10 Downing Street, Oxford is a slip road into the political motorway, offering the fastest route. This spectre of old boy networks exerting disproportionate influence is nothing new. That it's worrying goes on without saying. What is even more vexing, however, is that despite awareness that social mobility and diversity is the benchmark of a civilised society, this model continues to go unchallenged. Don't just take my word for it. A recent report by a tech platform called Zero Gravity, which is dedicated to social mobility, shows how deeply entrenched this culture remains. Its results reveal that the old boys and girls network of public schools gives students an enormous boost in terms of going to either Oxford or Cambridge and thereafter getting into the most prestigious and lucrative professions. Interestingly, it is not the academic credentials or amenities of these establishments that make a difference. In Zero Gravity's words, the main benefit of private education is the associated spheres of influence and support that these networks facilitate. For example, these youngsters can get help with applying for a place at Oxford for family friends, who are much more likely to include bankers, politicians and lawyers, than is the case for state school students. They are also more likely to be encouraged to apply to a Russell Group University and to be able to name these hundred high-ranking institutions. For that matter, can you? Zero Gravity's conclusion is simple. Our research highlights a widely accepted but rarely spoken about truth that, you are, that who you know often matters more than what you know. I wouldn't agree that this subject is often discussed, in some households, it's a bone nod on a daily basis, whether the likes of Boris Johnson appears on screen. But where zero gravity is right is in emphasising the disparity of life chances that such privilege represents. Getting into Oxford guarantees a high-flying career. When parents shell out eye-watering sums for school fees, they are not so much buying an education as ensuring entrance to a hugely powerful elite whose benefits will endure for the rest of their child's life. Altering the status quo will be no easy task, but unless you actually enjoy the taste of sour grapes, 
or are too busy constructing your barricades for the forthcoming revolution, there is another way of looking at the shameful clash with apartheid that continues to shape the way our country is run. Think of all the jobs from those private schools would struggle to get or never consider applying for. When, for instance, we were last attended by a nurse or paramedic who went to Eton or Roden. I have a relative from Musselburgh whose accent is a far cry from Fetus. Even so, she initially struggled to overcome her background when she taught to the deprived part of Edinburgh. The class thought she was super posh and it took a while for them to realise she was not a wee small beamed in from on a different planet, but no different from them. Think how much harder it would be for an old Etonian or white chemist to fit into a workplace like this, or to follow a career in, say, social work, where the first thing people would notice would be their plumbing vowels. It would take the skills of a Benedict Cumberbatch to blend in with colleagues in this and other professions, where the work entails immersion among society's most beleaguered, and where the pronunciation is the embodiment of an establishment that is widely perceived as doing its best to crush them. No doubt those who went to major fee-paying schools occasionally made this leap to go on to great things, but they are rare compared to the peers who go into the city, or the inns of court, or the houses of parliament where, like starlings swarming back into their roosts at dusk, they effortlessly blind in. This seems to me a serious shortcoming in the private educational system, where people's life choices are selected for them before they are born. Public schools are driven by ambition, for status, connections, influence, but above all, wealth. Ability is useful but not essential for getting on far beyond the dreams of most ordinary talented folk. As a result, those students who are not over-endowed with intellect, or are practical or artistic rather than academic, have a hard time diverging from the groupthink. I exaggerate, of course, but only to a degree. It seems to me yet another indictment of a system designed to divide and rule. Nothing about it is right or fair, yet, and this is truly shocking, the people responsible for ensuring the the domination of this class-based system are not just those who buy into it. It is all of us who are secretly impressed by brain or the cut glass accents, by the Oxbridge degrees and venerable family piles. For some unfathomable reason, it is widely accepted that somehow these people are brighter than the rest of us and will do things better. Well, we surely know what a daft notion that is. And that was an a comment piece by Rosemary Goring. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 17th of October 2022, from the Voices section, Mark Smith, four things Scottish Unionists should never say. One of the most striking things Nicola Sturgeon said in her speech to the SNP conference the other day was that the idea of a UK partnership of nations was being undermined by aggressive unionism, including full frontal attacks and devolution, and a lack of respect for the other side of the debate. If there's tension in the UK, she said, it is aggressive unionism that's causing it. Like a lot of what Scottish politicians say, nationalists or unionists, there's a seed of truth in this, but, as usual, it's filtered through constitutional goggles. Can a seed be filtered through goggles? Not sure that metaphor works, but bear with me. What I mean is that you cannot mention aggressive unionism without also mentioning aggressive nationalism, because they are two slices of the same sandwich, to use another ill-thought-through th- Ill metaphor. And yet, Miss Sturgeon did not mention both sides. Of course she didn't. 
Having said that, let's focus on the seed of truth because it's been on my mind of late while listening to some of the reaction to Ms Sturgeon's speech and Union's commentary more generally. A lot of it is undoubtedly aggressive, but a lot of it is ineffective or too much reliant on the anti-SNP cliches that have built up over the years. I think it would be better if Unionists avoided them and so I would like to suggest, just for a bit of constitutional fun, four things Scottish Unionists should never say. 1. Focus on the day job. This is one of the most common cliches of unionism. You hear it all the time. For example, Labour MP Rosanna Allen Khan. Ms Allen Khan said of Sturgeon's conference speech that she should be focusing on her broken health services, on the attainment gap in Scotland, on the fact that there are more children now poisoned to poverty than ever. In some ways this is fair enough. It is extraordinary that Ms Sturgeon should have talked so much about the NHS in her speech without seeking to explain why waiting times in Scotland are so shocking. You may know someone who's on a waiting list. Perhaps you're on a list yourself. Tens of thousands of people have now been waiting for more than two years for treatment and yes, it needs focus from the Scottish Government. As in, now. But the problem with an argument like focus on the day job is that first, it loses its power by repetition. People factor it in and don't really hear it. And secondly, we're actually now beyond the point where the Scottish Government could focus solely on the NHS rather than the Constitution even if it wanted to. Yes, the SNP arguably got us here because of their behaviour post-2014, but face the reality, we're in a constitutional crisis. We need to find a way out. We need to find a new status quo. We need to focus on our Constitution. 2. A once-in-a-generation vote. Did Alex Salmon say it? Did Nicola Sturgeon say it? Did I say it? Did you? Who knows, but the common repost to the idea of an independence referendum next year, or the year after, is that the SNP promised the last one in 2014 would be a once-in-a-generation. Assuming a generation is around 20 years, that would mean no new referendum until 2034. But the once-in-a-generation argument has a number of problems. Firstly, like the focus on the day job accusation, the more you say it, the less it means. Secondly, a basic tenet of the British constitution is that one group of politicians cannot bind their successors. In other words, even if Mr Salmon did make the promise, it does not bind Ms Sturgeon. And thirdly, it's fair to say that the political landscape has changed considerably since 2014 and the SNP can make a case for another vote. A much better riposte to their argument would be to say that there should not only be a referendum when there is a settled will for one, i.e. considerable majority support. I would say over 60% at least. 3. I hate the SNP. This one goes to the heart of what Ms Sturgeon said about aggressive unionism, the problem being that she made her point after saying she detested the Tories. The Tories reacted by saying it was shocking that Ms Sturgeon detested them, although much of their reaction was a little hysterical, even disingenuous. I do not think, as the Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack claimed, that using the word detest will incite violence, and saying Ms Sturgeon was being dangerous and inflammatory is silly. However, the problem of the personalisation of, of Scottish politics, I hate you, you hate me, is undoubtedly real and worse than it was and, whoever or whatever is to blame, unionists have tried to avoid it. I do not hate the SNP, I just disagree with the central premise. Keep the language calm and reasonable and you might find that you make some more project, more progress. 4. The media isn't tough enough. 
This is another one you hear a lot from unionists who are convinced the SNP is given an easy ride by Scottish media. But speak to some nationalists and they will tell you Scottish media is far too hard on the SNP and too soft on the Tories. Which is true. It doesn't matter. Focus on the arguments and the facts and quietly and calmly look for answers to questions that are bothering you. And finally, to end, a quick word on what the other side, the Scottish Nationalists, should be saying or not saying because there was something else that struck me about Nicola Sturgeon's speech. There was all the usual stuff about independence being the answer, but it was also notable how often she dropped in other phrases apparently aimed at introducing more realism into the case for independence. Independence is not a panacea, she said. It is not a miracle economic cure. Opinion polls go up and down. Do not assume an inevitability about independence. There will be lots of challenges along the way, etc. Why was she saying all of this? Hopefully, it's because she realises that, like some of the cliches that unionists trot out, the cliche that independence is the answer to every question is convincing no one, except the most zealous and solitary dripped. The rest of us, the ones Ms. Sturgeon needs to convince, want to hear something more nuanced and realistic. The First Minister says aggressive unionism is undermining the idea of a voluntary partnership of nations. But maybe she's also beginning to realise that a more reasonable form of nationalism is going to win independence. And that column was by Mark Smith. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 17th of October 2022. From the Voices section, Leslie Riddick, The Awkward Questions About the New Chancellor. Miriam Margulies' outburst on the Today programme may be the only honest reaction we get to the slow-motion car crash that is British government, as conservative shades of grey fill the airwaves and the chance of real debate in any good crisis both slip away. The outspoken 81-year-old actress was on Radio 4's Today programme lamenting the late, great Robbie Coltrane. She had taken a seat just vacated by Jeremy Hunt and said she wished him luck but really wanted to say F explicitly deleted U, U B explicitly deleted. Much paper shuffling and rapid apologies ensued. The Harry Potter star said afterwards she had mistakenly believed she was off air. Well, okay. Those who enjoy Miss Margulies cogent and occasionally sweary ranks in Channel 4's The Last Leg and to delicious indiscretions while lost in Scotland with Alan Cummings in a camper van might all hear their doots. But whether the Harry Potter star intended for her work to be broadcast or not, she spoke with visceral fury for millions. Running this country isn't a game. Wrecking this country isn't trivial. And listening worshipfully while Jeremy Hunt promised stability and the now customary Greek choir of ex-Tory advisors, ex-ministers and Tory-backing journalists assure viewers that a general election would produce meltdown. That is not media analysis worthy of the name or the hefty pay packets. Where is the deep scrutiny of what's gone wrong? Where is the debate about how neighbouring social democracies consistently achieve better economic outcomes and more sustainable growth in the UK? Clue, income inequality. But we trudge along at the bottom of international league tables. Where are the emergency TV debates probing the wreckage of the past 12 Tory years? Why is no one shaking their head or interrupting when Boris Johnson has turned into some paragon of economic competence simply because he isn't less trust and because it seems a trifle indelicate to mention the denial, the delay, the hundreds of thousands of Covid deaths, the crony contracts, the scramble for PPE and the clapping for carers so insincerely performed that the average carer today earns £9.50 an hour, lives in poverty 
and must claim benefits to survive. Mind you, the prospect of a bullish return has receded now that Jeremy, safe pair of hands, Mr Hunt, is effectively running the country. But what about his track record? Will anyone raise the awkward fact that Mr Hunt's privatisation of the English health system has all but destroyed it? As health secretary, he presided over the biggest ever collapse in NHS spending in 2010, when the usual 4% above inflation increase was slashed to 1%. Some English health trusts went bankrupt, others took out loans and some essentially handed over to private companies like Virgin Healthcare. Junior doctors went on strike, removing emergency care for the first time in NHS history, where Mr Hunt ended overtime payments for weekend work. Hastening today's crisis where tens of thousands of doctors' vacancies remain unfilled. Indeed, Jeremy Hunt's semi-privatised health trust run up such crippling levels of debt that the £13.4 billion was quietly written off during the second week of lockdown. Nice work. You can bet your bottom dollar you'll never hear that mentioned again. Nor will any interviewer or politician south of the border acknowledge the full poured onto the fire by Brexit, the self-hattering protest vote, that was enabled by David Cameron's reckless desire to scratch a constitutional itch. And above all, since another period of austerity beckons with doubled mortgage payments and record inflation, where is the critique of the whole plainful Osborne austerity experiment that was so successful in stimulating growth and investing Britain's abysmal productivity record that it did neither? The Tory philosophy, whether it's one nation, compassionate or just less trust, none of it has worked. And yet we hear no broad critiques and see the emergency leaders' debates about how best to extract this country from the mire. Just careful interviews, controlled news conferences and constrained debates among supporters of one party has become so irrelevant to Scots that it's set for electoral electoral oblivion again at the next general election. Meanwhile, we must watch utter drivel. On the Laura Coonsberg programme, former Health Secretary Matt Hancock said the Prime Minister has already made a big move towards economic responsibility. Whoop whoop. That's like saying a headmaster should stay in post because he finally accepts the importance of education. And yet that ludicrous assertion placed passed without comment, leading viewers to conclude that they've gone mad and everything is, impro- is improbably alright, or, more likely in Scotland, that blood pressure is best protected by switching off completely. But citizens can't switch off right now. We certainly don't need more interviews with well-insulated broadcasters rolling their eyes at the pickle the Tories are in, breathless with excitement at their own daring. We do need leadership from civic society, opposition parties and the fourth estate to force a reversal of the mini-budget, an apology, a resignation from Liz Trust and a vigorously contested general election that doesn't consist of sound bites and blame gaming. Of course, it's tempting and therapeutic to kick Liz Trust around, metaphorically speaking, but her time in power, if not her time in office, is already over. Far more important than when she goes, whether Rishi Sunak or Boris Johnson replaces her, and how long before the inevitable election is one question. What has gone so badly wrong? What have we learned from the last 12, 20 and 50 years? If we hurt along without a second's consideration of recent history, we're surely doomed to repeat it, and squander the slim chance that this awful winter might deliver a long overdue wake-up call and a grim turning point for Britain. It's time for long-term thinking. So, today's publication of the economic case for independence deserved close scrutiny, not automatic trashing. 
No path is without difficulty now, but only a few protagonists expect electorate enough to let them decide. And that opinion piece was by Leslie Riddick. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 17th of October 2022, from the Voices section, Kevin McKenna, the Tories must be delighted that TUC can be bought so easily. Last week, around the same time I was interviewing Ross Foyer, head of the STUC, it was being announced that our counterpart in England, Francis O'Grady, was to be appointed to the House of Lords. In our conversation, Ms Foyer had been professionally circumspect about her personal stance on Scottish independence, stating only that her organisation supported the right of Holyrood to hold an independence referendum, and that this right was reinforced by eight years of electoral victories across all of the UK's democratic jurisdictions by the main party of independence. As a trade union activist, Mr Foyer doesn't differentiate between workers' rights in Scotland and those across the rest of the UK and the world beyond. Not once did she attempt to suggest that Holyrood and Westminster now operated in different cultural, political and moral universes, as some Scottish nationalists are fond of, fond of insisting. As soon as it transpired though, there was really no need for her to spell it out. As Ms Foyer spoke passionately and eloquently about the need for the British trade union movement to bridge the gap between political rhetoric and taking firm action, Ms O'Grady was demonstrating one of the main reasons why the UK's ruling classes rarely have to work hard to undermine the workers' cause. When those elected to advocate for workers made such a good job of undermining them, at the same time, the boss class really don't need to worry about the inequality being reduced any time soon. Francis O'Grady's appointment to the UK's unelected Chamber of Political Placemen, Church of England bishops and billionaire Tory donors seeking the ultimate gift that money can't buy, shocked several trade union activists. These included men and women who thought that there was no more chapters to be written in the best area of political hypocrisy and working class sellouts. In Scotland, we thought we'd seen it all with the larks of the feckless SNP MP Pete Slippers Wishart. After several years of living the high life at the Palace of Westminster, Mr Wishart became so mesmerised by its baubles and finery that he wanted to become Speaker of the Parliament his party is committed to leaving. One lifelong trade union activist, a man who's not normally prone to overstatement, was astounded at how normal Ms O'Grady's exception of this elevation had seemed and how little criticism it had elicited in the English left. This is surely disgusting, he said. She's now known as Francis of Assisi. Please, Lord. The pressure issued by the TUC to proclaim Miss O'Grady's elevation to Ermine was straight from the Liz Trust Chronicle of Political Sophistry. In it, the TUC President Sue Fern said, This is a testament to Francis' leadership of the trade union movement. Francis has worked tirelessly to improve people's lives at work and secured many achievements, not least the furlough scheme. Her work is far from done. We look forward to having another ally in the House of Lords fighting to defend the right to strike and work and workers' rights. Commenting on the announcement, Francis O'Grady said, I will do everything I can to resist this government's plans to attack workers' pay and rights and protect the right to strike. In reality, what this really means is Francis has worked tirelessly to keep her head down, not rock the boat, not scare the horses and keep everything on an even keel. She didn't get where she is today by upsetting anyone and this softly, softly approach has now paid handsome dividends for her. But it doesn't end here. Oh no, and far from it. 
Francis determined the approval of the 756 members of the upper chamber by resisting the urge to make life uncomfortable for them and for sticking to the rules of the game. They were working her with open arms and velvet slippers. She will be a valuable addition to this august body and she looks forward to having little fireside charts about challenges in the labour market with her ladyships and lordships after the confit Aylesbury duck in orange and the Norfolk charred cauliflower couscous puree. Ms O'Grady's ten years at the helm of the TUC has not exactly upset the natural rhythms of British capital. Hers is best described as a glacial approach and at the invisible edge of understated. My trade union source described this in more uncompromising terms. The quotes about fighting for workers' rights are from a different reality, he said. She's never led a single strike in her life. Ms O'Grady's elevation to the House of Lords comes at the behest of the UK Labour Party. This party's leader, the Knight of the Realm, Sir Keir Starmer, forbade any of his MPs earlier this year from supporting workers' campaigns for modest pay rises by joining them on the picket lines. I'm sure these little differences can be worked out when the newly exalted Baroness O'Grady invites her fellow noble Sir Keir into the Lord's dining room for some of that lemon and cheerful poached guinea fowl, Ballantyne, just like their grannies used to make. The TUC has 5.5 million members, many of whom have been in picket lines in recent months, taking industrial action for modest pay increases that may, just may, keep pace with the rate of inflation. For this they have been accused of greed and holding the country to ransom by the people whose interests are being best preserved by the House of Lords. There is rejoicing in their Lordship's house when just one sinner from the labouring classes repents of their ways and joins them in an anointed £323 a day private rotary club. Great must, their glee, must be their glee when it's the actual leader of the Great Unwash who comes knocking at their door with a bowl and hands outstretched. This is their favourite type of trade genius. Supine, inoffensive and always knowing their place. And always knowing who's really running the show, old boy. And that was an opinion piece by Kevin McKenna. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 17th of October 2022, from the Voices section, the Herald Diary, when Robbie Coltrane was cooler than Tom Cruise, by Lorne Jackson. It's fitting that actor Robbie Coltrane will be remembered for his turn as Hagrid, the hirsute and hulking pal of Harry Potter, for he had a giant-sized talent which included perfect comic timing. I was fortunate to meet him while working as a TV extra in the filming of crime drama The Plan Man, says Malcolm Boyd from Mogai. The heat from the camera lights was excessive, so Robbie was given a handheld minifan to co- help cope. Before film resumed, Robbie turned to Malcolm and said, Tom Cruise has three million fans. Then, looking at the motorised gadgets in his hand, added, I only have one, but I am very grateful. Disintegration Nation Politics used to be a slow-mo soap opera. Events of state happening at a stately pace. No longer. Nowadays, you can't get through breakfast without being notified of a new Chancellor of the Exchequer. At least Liz Truss appears to be PM. At least she was when you started reading this article. Though feel free to check again when you've finished. Astonished at the accelerated disintegration of the governing classes, classical writer Ian Patterson says, We must be near the start of Act 2, where Johnson retakes the stage doing a knee slide with his jumper over his head like he's Mo Salah having just scored the fastest hat-trick in European League, Champions League history. Decisions, decisions. 
Arriving home from football practice, teenage son of Rita Callering Timothy was given two options for dinner, pasta or baked potato. Choosing pasta, he added with pride, you know those tough decisions you sometimes have to make in life? Guess I've just made my first one. Village people. Basketball singer Jody Finlay, who goes by the stage name Sylvie, recently moved to a small, exceedingly rural village. On the way to the bus stop for the first time, she passed two teenage girls who stared at her disbelievingly before one said to the other, Not seen her before. Didn't think places like this still existed, marvels Jodie, who is now looking for suggestions how she can cunningly pass herself off as a local. The Blame Game Observant Foster Evans spotted a tweet from the Trade Union Congress stating, Boss blaming you for the decision? Join a union. We've no idea what this is hinting at, though we're curious to know if Quasi Quarting has read it. Dead funny. Halloween looms, meaning terrifyingly awful Halloween jokes, such as this howler from Rod Bethany. What kind of streets do ghost haunts? Dead ends. And that was today's Herald Scotland Diary by Lauren Jackson. Hello, this is your reader Jackie on Monday the 17th of October. 2022 News Independence would mean spending cuts, warn IFS. This article is by Gabriel Mackay. The Institute for Fiscal Studies has warned that plans for Scottish independence would mean cuts to public spending and higher taxes than in England, but trade unions welcomed pledges on labour relations. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon presented a paper at Butte House detailing the economic case for leaving the Union. Proposals include rejoining the European Union, using sterling initially before moving to a Scottish pound, and the creation of an infrastructure fund using oil and gas revenues. David Phillips, an Associate Director at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, said the Scottish Government's new paper on post-independence economic plans makes all the right noises on how the public finances would be managed, emphasising achieving fiscal sustainability. But it skirts around what achieving sustainability would likely require in the first decade of an independent Scotland, bigger tax rises or spending cuts than the UK Government will have to pursue. This is because, while high oil and gas prices mean Scotland's underlying budget deficit this year will be fairly close to that of the UK as a whole, this is likely to prove temporary. Oil and gas prices are expected to fall back and North Sea production is on a long-term downward trend. Scotland's public finances are therefore expected to weaken relative to the rest of the UK Again, unless onshore economic growth could be boosted to grow revenues from income tax, VAT and the like. That's not impossible and the Scottish Government has rightly highlighted the UK's poor productivity performance, including relative to many of the small northern European countries that it is suggested Scotland could emulate. However, boosting productivity and growth is far from certain and would be easier said than done. Experience from recent weeks suggests the markets may not look favourably 
on fiscal plans built on the uncertain hope of a substantial future boost to growth. Sturgeon also sets out plans for a fairer economy, something that was welcomed by the Scottish Trade Union Congress. However, they urged the First Minister to use powers Holyrood already has to improve conditions for workers. The STUC said any changes to the UK constitution must radically alter for the better the economic conditions workers are subject to. There is much to welcome within this paper, including the end to wage discrimination, the repeal of the Trade Union Act, the focus on the importance of collective bargaining and the pledge to work with trade unions as social partners, not social pariahs. If taken at face value, the paper represents a positive, marked difference between Scottish and UK government approaches to industrial relations. But workers cannot wait for jam tomorrow. Our People's Plan for Action sets out nine key actions the Scottish Government can take right now to alleviate the cost of living emergency. If the Scottish Government is serious about valuing workers and altering our labour market, they can prove this here and now through actions, not words. This article is by Gabriel Mackay. The Herald, Monday the 17th of October 2022. News. Slave Bible loaned by University of Glasgow to Dutch Exhibition. This article is by Caroline Wilson. It serves as a chilling reminder of how white Christians manipulated sacred texts to legitimise slavery. A rare slave Bible was among 12,000 books donated to the University of Glasgow by insurance broker William Ewing in 1874. One of only three surviving copies recorded in the world, it was heavily edited to remove anything that might be seen to promote freedom among enslaved peoples. Entitled Select Parts of the Holy Bible for the Use of the Negro Slaves in the British West India Islands. The religious text, which dates from 1807, will be on display in Utrecht, the Netherlands until January the 16th, 2023, following a loan agreement. Despite censorship, passages about freedom that were omitted from religious texts turned up in spirituals, the songs of enslaved people in the United States. The Bible was among 12,000 books donated to the university by insurance broker William Ewing in 1874. In 2019, it appeared as an exhibit in Call and Response, the University of Glasgow and Slavery Exhibition, which formed part of the institution's reparative justice programme, launched in the wake of its 2018 slavery report, which quantified the institution's financial gains from historic slavery. Graham Campbell, a Glasgow City Council councillor, human rights activist and advisor on the report said at the time, pro-slavery Christians were very deliberate in editing the Bible 
to exclude its most inconvenient truths about freedom, emancipation, liberty, justice and mercy. Enslaved Africans and their descendants had these mental chains smelted from a peculiarly Scottish mixture of white supremist racial hatred and enlightenment rationalised missionary zeal. The Bible was as effective a tool of enslavement as any cast iron chains. The Bible, which dates from 1807, will be displayed as part of the exhibition Gospel, Musical Journey of Spirit and Hope at the Museum Carthagena Convent, which is the Dutch National Museum for the Art, Culture and History of Christianity. A spokesperson for the museum said, The Slave Bible is a key object in our exhibition about gospel music. It is an example of how white Christians used the Bible as a tool of power to legitimise and preserve the institution of slavery. Not only in the British West India Islands, where this book was used by British missionaries, but also in, for example, Suriname, a Dutch colony, and the United States. In these places, Bible texts were used to legitimise slavery and other texts were censored and kept away from the enslaved. However, these measurements did not prevent faith from taking root on the plantations. The passages about freedom that were omitted turned up in spirituals, the songs of enslaved people in the United States. We are very fortunate and proud that we can now show this impressive object in our exhibition. As is common with books of this age, the Bible's condition has deteriorated with use. To enable safe handling and teaching, research and display, it was treated by the university's conservation team in advance of its travel to the Netherlands so that it could be loaned for exhibition with minimal risk of further damage. This article is by Caroline Wilson. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.